actually have, and I had explained this to the others, the good fortune of a well, um, world-renowned traveler here with us. Her name is Urmila Devi, and she has been practicing bhakti for over 40 years, 45 years? 46. 46 years. And she also happens to be my teacher, mentor, like teacher, like I was in her preschool in Detroit. <laughs> and she shares wisdom and um, quite a few topics on mantra meditation, on really changing your life with this Vedic process, as well as traveling to many uh, facilities of education all around the world to fortify our education in our, in our society. So here, here she is. Pleasure to be here. And I should say that I have, um, do I need a mic for you? Okay. No, we have a mic. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So I also have um, three books here tonight. We have a, a limited supply, but this is the first day that I'm here. So. Um, this is a, a translation of a book that was written about 500 years ago in Sanskrit. It, it means the splendid <coughs> instructions to the mind. And uh, when am I going to be teaching this? Do you remember? Sunday. Sunday morning at 10. Sunday morning at 10. Is that what I'm teaching this? Yeah. Um, and I would, I would really suggest, if you're interested in, in going deeper into the process, uh, we, we produced this translation of the Sanskrit with all original uh, illustrations. We had these 12 full-color paintings made for the book and 120 black and white pictures. And this basically takes you step-by-step step on the process to enlightenment. It is a little deep. It's a, it's a little bit of an advanced book. And then we have this one, which is a spiritual novel. So this takes you from material life also to enlightenment, but in the form of a, of a fictional story. If you're familiar at all with Herman Hesse's Siddhartha or the book The Alchemist, it's somewhat in that genre of a, basically a spiritual fable of how to attain perfection. So this is, it's got the same stuff that's in here, but as a light fictional read. And then this little one is, is about, bless you, this is about mantra meditation, what we just did. So about how to get the most out of your chanting of the Hare Krishna mantra. So we have these available here, and we have special deals on them, so if you're interested. I'd be happy to autograph them for you, too. All right, so I'm not used to using an iPad. Hopefully, I'll, hopefully it won't be a problem, right? Okay, so what I'm going to be going over today are, as I mentioned, that this is a metaphorical novel. So I'm not, there's no spoilers. I'm not going to tell you what happens in the story. But we are going to go over the metaphors that form the basis of this novel. And the metaphors were t are taken from three sources. One, very, very ancient. This starts with the person who's carrying the palanquin there in the front. And he's standing up over here. Yeah, that one. And there he's standing up and instructing the king who was in the palanquin there. Two different pictures of that. So this particular person called Jada. Jada was actually a name given to him as a child, which means kind of like you stupid fool. And it he was given this name because he was already an enlightened being when he was like one or two years old. And he decided that he didn't want to interact with the world. Like, you know how some you know, monks will go to some monastery where they take a vow of silence? 
and they don't interact with anybody. There's a famous monastery in Europe where all the monks keep silence except for half an hour once a week where they go out and play games. So he decided that he wasn't going to interact with the world. He wasn't going to speak. He was going to pretend he couldn't see and hear. And so people thought he was, he was foolish. So he was engaged. He was forced, actually, into slavery to carry this king's palanquin. And he didn't want to step on ants as he was walking. And so the king berated him. And what's wrong with you? Why can't you? Because know, he was moving the palanquin. And then he told the king this, this particular set of metaphors. So he starts out by explaining that we are originally spiritual beings, that we belong to another realm. We don't actually belong to this world at all. And many of the desires that we find difficult to fulfill in this world are because we really aren't part of this world at all. Something like in the desert, there are creatures who have no inclination to drink water because they are made so that they don't have to drink water. But if we go in the desert, we feel very thirsty. So we belong to a spiritual realm, and here we're looking for, you know, perpetual, youthful, vital life, right? always increasing pleasure, great knowledge, great power, but they aren't really to be found here. So he explains that we belong to another realm. But we've come here, and in this world, he makes the comparison that this world is like a great forest where merchants have come to try to make a profit. And in this metaphor, Jada is really talking about the exploitive tendency. That in this world, there's an, a tendency to say, oh, the world is here for me to exploit for my own ends. Now, sometimes it's very extreme, the people who are polluting and so forth, just to make a little bit of extra money or misusing others practically. I mean, we, uh, we do still have slavery in the world, of course, and then we have such great exploitation of people that it's practically like slavery. You know, a lot of the goods that we buy, unfortunately, are from people working at really subsistence wages with no health insurance and unhealthy environments. But okay, so I can get something that I want. So he says, we come to this world like you'd come to a forest saying, oh, well, let me collect the goods from that forest. This is one of the illustrations from the book. Let me collect the goods from that forest that I can use to make some profit. We look at the world as, oh, I can profit from this, I can profit from that, I can exploit this, I can exploit that. And many times we even look at our relationships with other living beings like that. You know, what can I get out of this person? How can I have my relationship with this person work for my advantage? And we've been doing that, Jada explained, not only in this lifetime, but through many, many, many lifetimes through different species. So as a human being, we've incarnated as, as male, as female, from all different countries, in all different species, as plants, as animals, as insects, as birds. And in each of these lifetimes, the same problem is there, looking at the world around us and thinking, oh, how can I get something from this for myself? He says, but there is some hope in this world, and this hope are beings who are enlightened who've realized their spiritual nature, who've given up any desire to exploit. And Jada's metaphor for them is a honeybee. And the honeybee, because it goes and takes the essence or the nectar from the flowers, and it turns it into a most wonderful food. So this, these saintly persons or the enlightened beings acting as a honeybee can give us the essence of reality, that there's something beyond an exploitive mentality, there's something beyond just 
materialism, and that we can find that something even within this world. Just like even within this world, we can find the nectar from the flowers. But first we want to understand something of the nature of our illusion and the nature of our materialism. So Jetta explains that although we may have very good qualities and be very kind people, all it takes is a little fatigue, hunger, or thirst for us not to be so nice anymore. And we've experienced that from other people, you know, people who love us, we love them. All they have to be is a little hungry, tired, or thirsty, and they're irritable, or even for ourselves. And we may say or do things that even hurt other people that we love. So it doesn't, it doesn't take much for us to step back a bit from our better selves. And then he says also in this world, there's many things that we want that we've never achieved. You know, maybe some of us want to be rich, but all we manage to do is just pay the, the rent or the mortgage. Or maybe we want to be, you know, a famous movie star, or we want to marry that beautiful person, or we want to have a house over here, or we want to get that degree, or whatever it is that we want that we just never achieve. Life goes on and on and on. I was just thinking this morning about someone I know who's now in his mid-40s. And he said, you know, when I was a kid, I always hoped that I would make some great scientific discovery. You know, so we have these dreams, and they're compared metaphorically to a castle in the sky, something imaginary that we never achieve. You know, we're always going for it, and it always remains some kind of illusion. Then he gives us the metaphor of swamp gases. So sometimes gases coming from a swamp have some phosphorescence. They're glowing. They look like gold. But when you actually go to the swamp, you see it's just some kind of vapor, some sort of chemical reaction. And Jetta gives this as a metaphor for the things we want and we do get them. But when we get them, we find that they're not what we thought they would be. You know, when I was... Uh, when I was in graduate school, I remember one of my professors saying that when he was 19, a speaker had come to the class and said, if you do this and this and this and this, you'll be a school superintendent by the time you're 33. Generally, don't, people aren't school superintendents until they're in their 50s or maybe even 60s. And he thought, wow, I'm going to do that. And he followed this guy's instructions to the letter, you know, like a cookbook. Became a school superintendent at 33 and realized he didn't want to be a school superintendent. His wife hated it so much she left him. I mean, I have a, a good friend, you know, who went to law school so many years to become an expert lawyer, and then it's like, ah, you know, I hate the law. I don't like doing this at all. And it's sometimes like that, you know, we're thinking, oh, if only I could marry this person, then we marry them, and they're like, oh, boy. <laughs> right? I read about a, a church that wasn't getting much attendance on Sunday, and then they advertised the lecture what to do if you think you married the wrong person and 2,000 people showed up? You know, so you think, oh, if only I could be with this person, I'd be happy. Or I just have this house or this career or live here. So the swamp gas represents that kind of thing. The things you want, you get castle in the sky was the things you wanted that you didn't get. And the swamp gas is things you wanted, you got them and like, oops. Then he gives the metaphor of mosquitoes, right? We've all tried to sleep with a mosquito. It happened to me the other night. That was... And you're hitting yourself, isn't it? You're doing like this all night, waking yourself up. <laughs> so this is a metaphor for people who criticize us, but we can't quite get a hold on who they are, and we can't quite deal with it. 
We just know people are saying bad things about us behind our back, and we, we don't really know how to deal with it. And when we try to counteract what they're saying, we just end up hurting ourselves. Right? We just end up making it, it worse. Well, I didn't really do that. Well, this didn't really happen. Well, that really didn't happen. Right? Then he gives the metaphor of the crows, the locusts, and the rats. So these eat the harvest. And this is a metaphor for the things that we work hard for right when we're about to enjoy them. They get taken away. So we used to have a cherry tree in our backyard and we would watching the cherries for when they ripen and the birds were also watching. <laughs> right? It was always this, this contest who would get the, the cherries first. Or sometimes, you know, you work on a project. I've had this happen to me several times. You work on a project you know, someone, some, your boss or whatever asks you to do something, and then after you finish it, the boss says, you know, I decided I really don't care about this. <laughs> it's happened to me several times. You don't say you work on something for months. Right? Actually, just happened to me just recently. Work on something for months, and you get it done. Well, you know, I've changed my, I've changed my priorities. I really don't care about this. Forget it. Or you work on something, and then right when it's done, somebody else takes the credit. You know, something where you work for something, you put your energy into something, and right when you're ready to enjoy it, somehow it gets taken away. Then you have the owls and the crickets. So crickets, you hear them, but it's hard to find them, right? And the owls, you don't hear them at all. They just swoop on you. So this is a metaphor for the people who criticize us, and we don't really know who they are. We just know somebody's criticizing us. This is like when someone comes to you and says, um, I need to tell you something in confidence. There's some people saying that you really have a lot of problems. Well, well can you tell me, you know, what are they saying exactly? I'm, I'm sorry, I can't tell you. That's confidential. Well, who's saying it? Maybe I could talk to them and try to sort it out. I'm, I'm sorry, I can't tell you. That's confidential. Right? So this is the this owls and the crickets. They're, they're there, but you can't quite get them, right? Then there's the snakes, which are a metaphor for the enemies who actually hurt you. So these are not just people who, who goes bzz, 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 criticize you or talk about you behind your back and you don't know, but they actually cause you harm. They actually damage your reputation or they take your money or they take your job or something like that. Now, in going through all this, you might say, oh, let me just get some relief. And we may look for relief sometime by wanting to swim in a cool river. But Jetta said some of these rivers that you think will provide you relief are very shallow and right under the river are rocks. So this is a metaphor for people who appear to be offering some system of religion and spirituality, but are actually just cheaters. They're really interested in just taking your money. So we don't want to pick on a particular religion or group for this because it's found all over the place. Now, although these are people who are not really religious at all, sometimes they appear to be part of a religion. So I remember seeing a, an expose of some of the, uh, what do you call them, televangelists in this country. So, you know, some of them will get up and say, the way you know you please Jesus is if you're rich, like me. I just spent 630 million cash for this new jet. 
Do you want to become rich like me and have the grace of Jesus? Just send me a $5 donation. Which is, of course, how he got rich, right? <laughs> and I will send you a blessed handkerchief to put under your pillow or blessed oil and things like that. And with one of these guys, he was saying, you know, if you have massive credit card debt, you've just got to plant a seed that'll make you rich. And the way you plant that seed, take out another thousand on your credit card. <laughs> Seriously. And, and send it to me. Exactly. You donate a thousand to him from your credit card. That that donation will act as a seed, and that'll give you more money, and then you'll become rich. Just like me, who just spent six hundred million cash for a jet. You know, and we have, and of course, some of these people don't even pretend to be part of any religion. They just set up, concoct their own system. Sociologists call these people not actually religionists, but magicians. What they're really proposing is some kind of system of magic. But sometimes they cloak it in whether it's Christianity or Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam, or it depends on what part of the world you're in. So this is like, oh, because the speaker's going in the kitchen. That's what it is. It's like, why do I get this echo sometimes? Okay. So this is just like you jump in a river thinking it's going to be cooling and refreshing. Yeah, it's only when you open the door. Yeah, fine. And instead, you break your neck on the rocks, and you end up in a wheelchair, right, instead of getting any kind of relief. Then there's the storm. Like, I heard we're going to have a storm tonight, so a lot of people didn't come because they're worried about the storm. So the storm Jetta talks about is a dust storm. I don't think you have dust storms here in Dallas. Yeah, I have dust storms here. Not in this part of the country. Yeah, I've been to like places like Dubai, Bahrain, and even some parts of India, we get dust storms. But here, probably it's rain. You don't get much snow here either, do you? No. No. Uh, no. Do you ever get snow? Sometimes. Sometimes a little dust, right? Once in a great while. Three or four flakes and they shut the whole city down. <laughs> but you, pro you probably get bad rainstorms, yeah? Yes. Oh, yeah. So where you can't see, like you're driving your car and you can't see? Right? So this is compared to uh, improper romantic attachments, where you get romantically attached to somebody and you're, you're blinded. You know, the, the sexual desires are so strong that you don't understand that this person I've been attached to is not a suitable person. It's not someone who's going to make me happy. And I'm sure we all know somebody who's gotten in this kind of a storm and really messes up their life. Hopefully nobody in this room. Now, this is when uh, this beehive is for actually adulterous relationships where you become romantically involved with someone else's husband, someone else's wife, and they don't exactly appreciate it. So this is when you try to steal someone else's honey, they come after you. So this is the, the swarming beehive that attacks the honey thief. Uh, and then you have the jackals. Now... Jack, golden jackals and tigers have an interesting relationship where the tiger allows the golden jackal to eat some of their food. But this is a comparison to people who appear to be your friends, but who take from you. And it might appear to be your family, right? So just, just recently, actually, I saw someone in my family and um, she, she calls me up and she said, hey, you know, I heard you're in town. Can I come by and see you? Sure, you can come by and see me. 
So she comes by and sees me, and all she wanted was money from me. It was kind of interesting. She's like, you know, hey, do you think you'd give me $100? I'm in trouble. And, you know, so sometimes we have like that. We have people who are their family, their friends, but actually that what their real interest is to take something from you. Yes? I think we've all experienced this kind of thing, either in our own family and friends or with other people that we know. Okay, so this is very steep mountains. This metaphor is very steep mountains covered with thorns. So this is a metaphor for events and ceremonies that we are obliged to either go to or create ourselves. But they're simply troublesome. Right? Okay, okay, I gotta go to this wedding. I gotta go to this party. Hi everybody, it's lovely to see you. Very nice, you know. Or when you're organizing the event and you've got to spend all this money and then you're thinking, okay, I gotta invite him, I gotta invite him, but they haven't talked to each other for 10 years and what tables am I gonna seat them at? Right, and then afterwards you're exhausted and it takes you five days to recover. I had a friend who was uh, organizing a wedding. Actually, actually, they had wanted the couple wanted two weddings in two different places for two groups of the family. So she was organizing two weddings two days in a row. And she said for the next two weeks, anytime she sat down, she fell asleep. You know, as soon as she sat down, <laughs> so this is like this steep, steep mountains covered with thorns. All these ceremonies and events that we either have to organize or go to. Then we have a metaphor of cannibalistic demons. And this is a metaphor for the government overtaxing. You know? Give us more and more money so we can build a wall. I hope none of you are into the wall anyway. So that we can. <laughs> is, it, is this really, this is really what that's about, the government overtaxing? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Very specific. <laughs> yeah, very specific. Yeah, Jeddah was giving this metaphor of cannibalistic demons where you, you're eating your own people. You know, you're eating your own people. So the government is supposed to be protecting us. That's why we have government. We have government because it's very difficult for each of How am I going to build the road? You know, It's kind of hard. So we come together and we pool some of our money so that we have a government who's going to build a road and build schools and have a police force and so forth, you know, take care of sick people. But if the government simply overtaxes and lines their own pockets, you know, let me take from you so I can play golf every weekend and whatever, then it's like they're eating their own. So it's compared to eating your own people. And then we have the metaphor of the python. This represents sleep. Now, this doesn't just mean physical sleep, but being spiritually asleep being you know, unaware of one's own spiritual needs, one's own spiritual nature. And then finally, after all this trouble, there's the metaphor of the lion of death. So all this difficulty with the mosquitoes and the locusts and the tall mountains and the cannibalistic demons, and after that, a lion comes and eats you and you're all, it's all over. So this part of our metaphor is perhaps is a bit depressing, but after Jada told these metaphors to the king, he decided that he was going to stop enslaving people to carry his palanquin and that he was going to seek for a spiritual life. So we might also decide, well, after hearing all these metaphors of material life, let me also look for the essence. Let me look for enlightenment. So now we're going to go to a different set of metaphors 
Those given by Jeddah were given actually thousands of years ago. This next was about half a century ago. And this is uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, and an avatar or an incarnation. And he taught these particular metaphors to one of his students. So he said, if you're going to be looking for the essence of life, if you're going to be looking for spirituality, so we already talked about with Jeddah's metaphor, the completely false purveyors of spirituality and religion, people who are actually teaching some sort of false magic. But he says, you also have to be aware of people who are teaching a genuine religious system. They're not just charlatans, but they're teaching it in the wrong way. And the metaphor here is to being under a spell. So we have here these two like witches or, or demons or en enchanters. And they put, they have two different spells. One is the spell of material wealth. So this demon is wearing a garment made of coins and promising like houses and wealth. And the other is the demon of losing yourself. The concept that spirituality means a negation of the self. Just to becoming one with some energy and losing your individuality. Both of these spells or enchantments distort actual spirituality or actual religion. So people say you should take up a religion or take up a spiritual path so that you can enjoy the world. That's a little different from I'm going to take your money by promising you wealth. It's not quite the same thing. But here you can worship God or you can take up a spiritual path so that you can become prosperous and wealthy or so you can have salvation. You can forget about the material miseries and just become one with the light. So the reason that both of these are a distortion and kind of an enchantment is that real spirituality and religion is about establishing a loving relationship with the divine. It's about realizing ourselves fully. So if any of you studied Maslow's hierarchy of needs and he talked about the highest one being self-actualization. Now Maslow presumably was speaking about this, writing about this, in terms of our material identity, that I fully understand who I am in terms of this world. But I also have a fully who I am beyond this world, beyond this body, beyond my identities and roles here. And that fully who I am is a loving divine being, not just emerging in light and not just somebody in this world. So although these people are teaching a real religious system. Again, whatever religion it may be, there's many bona fide religions and spiritual paths in the world. But they're teaching it in the wrong way. And so these teachers become bewildered, and the people who follow them also become bewildered. They, they don't really give up their selfishness. They're still thinking, well, I'm going to become saved, or I'm going to become prosperous. So he says, instead, you should go for a genuine spiritual path taught in a genuine way. And Chaitanya gives this metaphor of a city. And he says, in this city, there's a treasure for you to find. So that someone in your family has left you a treasure as an inheritance. That's his metaphor. And this treasure is buried somewhere in the city. But you can look in the northern part, the southern part, the eastern part, or the western part of the city. 
And this treasure is the process of enlightenment, the treasure of finding actual divine love. But depending on where you go in the city, in each place, there's some problem, there's some difficulty that you're going to have to encounter and overcome. And again, this is all metaphorical. So in the northern part of the city, metaphorically speaking, the path of spirituality is called the mastery connection. This is a way of connecting with the divine by trying to master one's body and one's senses. Now we might think of this as a path of yoga where one engages in meditation, one tries to raise the life air through the the prana, through the chakras of the body. But even, I remember when I was first teaching this in Ypsilanti, one of the guests says, oh, this is what I do when I teach very traditional martial arts. I teach a person how to master their body and their mind so as to achieve enlightenment. And I found that very interesting. So, of course, most of the traditional religions in the world don't exactly teach enlightenment through this path, although it's still there. Like if you look at some of the old Christian mystics who were contemplatives and engaged in a process of meditation, or in Islam would be the Sufis. But, and of course, in Buddhism, it's quite dominant, at least among the monks, and people are taking up uh, uh, very much, I think, throughout the world, people are becoming attracted to some Buddhist form of meditation, where the idea is that you control the mind and you control the body. Now, this human body is designed so that there are systems of mechanically controlling the body, which will jettison you into a enlightened state. If you just sit in a certain way and you breathe in a certain way and you control the mind in a certain way, you will attain an enlightened state. But there is, there's some danger on this path. First of all, when you go in this path, if you can do it rightly, you will also awaken great powers that may be a detour for you for enlightenment. People who become expert in this path can do things like control other people's minds, see into the future, levitate, go without food for long periods of time. There's, there's a lot of different powers that they can amass. And often when people get these powers, they forget that they're trying for enlightenment. And they think, okay, let me now enjoy the world in a subtle way. Another difficulty is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu gives the metaphor of a snake. And when people are expert on this path, of course, they awaken the metaphorical snake of kundalini energy. The difficulty is, well, two difficulties. First of all, people nowadays who do this may end up into all kinds of problems. This kundalini energy is very, very powerful energy. And when for human beings who are very qualified and who can control that kundalini energy, it can give them great understanding. But if they're not qualified, it can end up causing them actually physical and mental problems. And there's a, a number of books been written on this topic that people who, without the proper qualifications, awakened their kundalini and ended up having physical disease and even mental disease. There was an article in the New York Times a couple months ago about people who take up these mastery connection processes. They go for like a 10-week retreat, but they're, they're not qualified. They don't have the mental and physical purity, and therefore some of them actually become mentally ill and have to be institutionalized. It's, it's quite a heavy thing. 
So as if you understand how this works subtly, the kundalini has to go up certain channels in the body. And if those channels aren't clear, that energy, instead of going up those channels, will go into different parts of the body and damage the organs of the body. But another danger of awakening the kundalini is that this energy may swallow one. Again, you can lose your identity. And you don't come to divine love. So those are the dangers on this path of mastery connection. All right, then we have the... uh, This is in the western part of the city. So this is what's called the knowing connection. The knowing connection is when we try to become enlightened and connect with the divine through knowledge. So in our modern day, this is sort of represented by a lot of the scientific attempts to transcend this material nature, that we're going to conquer disease, we're going to conquer suffering, we're going to come through real knowledge through the scientific process. We're going to study the planets, we're going to study the body, we're going to study chemistry and mathematics and so forth. In spiritual paths, this was the path of studying philosophy or studying scripture to try to understand how everything works. That if I can understand how everything works, then I'll become detached from the world and in that detachment from the world, I'll realize myself. Now, the problem on this path is represented by that fellow over there, who in Sanskrit is called a yaksha, or a nature spirit. And these nature spirits are like the, they're subtle beings who control like forests and rivers and mountains. Right? I think a lot of the uh, indigenous people of the earth had some connection with these nature spirits. In Iceland today, the government takes these beings quite seriously. They're called the Hulu folk. And they're very, the government even is very careful. If they want to build a road or construct a building, they want to make sure it's not going to interfere with the work of these nature spirits. So because these, these entities guard nature, and this is a way of enlightenment where you're studying nature, whether you're doing it through science or whether you're doing it through scripture or you're doing it through philosophy, they confuse you because when you study nature very expertly, like the mastery connection, instead of leading you towards enlightenment, it may lead you to a better mastery of nature. And as we see with modern science, mastering nature isn't always done in a way that's favorable for the individual and for society, isn't it? Right? Okay, now I've become the master of nature. Let me bend it to my will. Let me try to force nature to act as I want. So these yakshas confuse one. And we find that people who study science or philosophy or scriptures, they often come up with simply competing ideas and competing philosophies, none of which explain reality and truth. And everyone is simply, instead of using the study of science, philosophy, and scriptures as a way to find truth, They use it to try to establish themselves as the greatest philosopher or scientist or the greatest religionist and to say that, you know, my religion is better than yours, my philosophy is better than yours, my science is better than yours. And they never really get the whole picture of reality. So then in the southern portion of the city, we will find action connection. So action connection is probably one of the most popular ways of spirituality being done in the world today. And that is be a good person, act piously, and dedicate what you're doing to God or dedicate what you're doing to the Supreme. And this way of finding enlightenment 
is a little easier to attain than the knowing connection or the mastery connection because we're all acting in the world. And if you take what you're doing anyway in the world and you do it for spiritual realization instead of for material profit, that seems like a pretty natural and easy thing to do. We say, okay, you know, if, if you're working as a banker, then work as a banker for your enlightenment rather than just to make money. Uh, be a good person in the world for the purpose of enlightenment. So, of course, this also all of these paths have their problems. So the difficulty with this path is in order to work in the world as a good person, you have to give yourself some kind of label. You have to say, I'm a banker, or I'm a college professor, or I'm a clerk at the grocery store, or I'm an Uber driver, or I'm a husband, or I'm a wife, or I'm a mother, or I'm a father, or I'm a son, or I'm a daughter. And as soon as we give ourselves these labels, we can start thinking that my label is better than your label. The work that I'm doing is better than the work that you're doing. And so the metaphor for this are the giant hornets, and you can see how big one of these hornets is. Now, we talked about how the honeybee was a metaphor for an enlightened being, and hornets are natural enemies of honeybees. The hornets will try to go into the bee's hive and steal their honey. And the bees as a group are able to kill the hornets. And although the hornets are social creatures, they're very cruel to each other. So I've been a professor of sociology. And in sociology, we have different ways of trying to understand society. So some sociologists say that the way we should understand society is in a functional way, that each of us are doing a different function to try to have a harmonious whole. But another way is what you call conflict theory or critical theory. Conflict theory means that society is organized in conflict. Conflict between genders or conflict between races or conflict between economic classes or conflict between political classes. Some kind of conflict between some people who have more power and some people who have less power. And that's how Hornet society is organized. The sociologists were really into conflict theory. They, they must, you know, take birth as hornets. So among the hornets, the stronger hornets will take the food away from the weaker hornets. The male hornets are very aggressive and cruel, cruel towards the queen. In fact, the queens try to fly away and get away from the male hornets rather than mate with them. They, they'd rather be infertile and not continue the hive rather than deal with the males. So this is the problem of the action connection. That one can, instead of doing action for the sake of the supreme or for the sake of enlightenment, one gets into the action itself, starts identifying with it, and starts exploiting people who have less material power or prestige or status than oneself. So then in the eastern part of the city, metaphorically, is the devotion connection. <laughs> so the devotion connection is also certainly a popular form of spirituality in the world today, and we in the Hare Krishna movement are teaching this devotion connection. So devotion connection basically means that the way I connect with the divine is my ultimate goal, that my means of attaining my goal and my goal are the same, that my goal is to awaken my real personality and connect with the divine in a relationship of love, and the way I achieve that is I start trying to connect with the divine in a relationship of love today. And it in, in, involves particularly singing divine names, 
meditating on the form of the divine, and dedicating everything to the pleasure of the divine, to the pleasure of Sri Krishna. Now, this path also has a problem. All, of the, all four paths have a metaphorical problem, right? The mastery connection, it was the snake. In the knowing connection, it was the nature spirits. In the action connection, it was the hornets. And here it's a crazy elephant, an elephant in must. So elephants are a little unusual. I don't know if any other animal has this particular characteristic. So generally among uh, mammals and birds and, and lizards and so forth, the female goes into a periodic state of fertility. But the male is, is fertile always. So male elephants are also fertile always, but male elephants go into periodic times of heightened sexual desire and potency. Now they're not scheduled. Like with, with females, it's generally a scheduled cyclical thing. With the male elephants, it's unpredictable. And it's called must. And when a bull elephant goes into must, he becomes more or less crazy. If you can think of like, like a hyper-aroused hyper male. So that's kind of the state of the bull in must. And the theory of zoologists is that generally among the elephants, one very powerful bull elephant will have a lot of females. And the young bull elephants never get to mate. But when a young bull is in must, the old bulls get out of his way. Like, I'm not messing with this guy. When a bull goes into must, if it's a trained elephant, that elephant, elephants usually have a very good memory. And anyone who is ever kind to an elephant, that elephant will be kind to them. But not when the bull is in must. When the bull is in must, he forgets. And he'll even kill his trainer. He'll destroy homes. He'll destroy gardens, everything. Just destroys anything that gets in his way. It becomes really... Uh, really kind of nuts. So this elephant in must is symbolic of the problem in the devotion connection path, and that is a kind of pride of thinking, I'm more devoted than you, or my particular path of devotion is better than yours. The way that I do devotion is better than yours, and criticizing others who are also on the path of enlightenment. Either, you know, well, I'm in the devotion connection, you're just in the action connection, or you're just in the mastery connection. Or, you know, yes, you're also on the devotion path, but I'm more devoted. And of course, of course, we see this happening. We see it happening within people in the devotion connection path and between people. Yes. And this kind of pride and criticism acts like a crazy elephant that just destroys everything. It destroys all the devotion. It destroys all of the love and affection and just leaves everything trampled. So these are metaf metaphorically, the reason we put this butter heart here is the devotion connection melts your heart. So uh, these are the four bona fide paths to enlightenment, mastery connection, knowing connection, action connection, and devotion connection. So now we've ended the metaphors given by Chaitanya about 500 years ago. Now we're going to go to our last set of metaphors. And this was particularly from this big book here uh, by Raghunath Das Goswami. He's the, the original author of this book. Uh, he was often called Das Goswami, which we could sort of loosely translate as a servant leader. And he decided that he was going to write metaphorically about the obstacles and the opportunities on the devotion connection path. 
So because here I'm a student in the Hare Krishna movement on a devotion connection path, so therefore I'm going to take us now through the steps on that path. So we've gone through all of the different difficulties described by Jetta, the mosquitoes and the high mountains and the cannibalistic demons. You know, we're not going to go through some system of cheating, false magic. We're not going to go to a system, a genuine system, where we're enchanted by these two demons. And we're looking at the city and we're choosing, at least here tonight, we're choosing the, the path of the devotion connection. So now we're going to go metaphorically through this path of devotion connection to come to ultimate perfection. So the way this path might be described in the other three kinds of connections would be different, but I'm looking specifically because this is the path that I've taken. So I'm going to describe that particular path of devotion connection. Okay, so he says the first step on this path is to have great love for your teachers of spirituality, which in Sanskrit is called one's guru. So whoever teaches you about spirituality, whether formally or informally, in whatever capacity, anyone who has helped us on this path of enlightenment, to have great love for them, not just some formal relationship, but a relationship of seeing this person is really my well-wisher, of great affection. And to have great love, remember we talked about the crazy elephant, to have great love for everyone else on the spiritual path. Any genuine practitioner of the spiritual path, regardless of tradition, regardless of their level of advancement. Not just respect, not just tolerance, but actual love. And then to have great love for the prayers, the mantras, the holy name of the divine, just like we had our meditation on these sacred sounds. And not to engage in them in a mechanical way, because the main practice in devotion connection is absorption in spiritual sounds. And to have those sounds, again, with great love, with great affection. Then to have great love for sacred places. So the word in Sanskrit for a sacred place is tirta. Tirta means a crossing place, kind of like a bridge. That a, a sacred place ha- allows us to have a connection between material consciousness and spiritual consciousness. You can think of it like if you have your phone and you, you get a spot where you get, you know, like five bars, right? Where you get a good connection. We can also become a tirta, just like you can make your phone a hot spot for somebody else. So if you're an enlightened being, you can become a walking tirta. Now, there are certain places on the planet that are sacred. So this planet was arranged with certain places that are intrinsically sacred. And whoever goes there, if they understand how to access it, just like I came here and you have Wi-Fi, but I needed the password, right? I needed to be able to access it. So when you go to these sacred places, if you know how to access it, they act as a bridge to the divine. But what's also interesting is you can create a sacred place. You can become a sacred place, and you can create a sacred place, which is what's been done here with the the setup of the altars here is the creation of a sacred place. So anyone in their own home can create a sacred place, which then acts as this tirta. But we should have love for these places, just like you can see the people here. You can see that these places are very clean, and they've decorated them with flowers. So whenever we set up some sort of sacred place in our space, 
then we should have love for that space. I've also seen conversely, sometimes I go to people's homes where they've set up a sacred place, but they don't clean it. They don't clean it, they don't decorate it. They may, you know, burn some incense there and the ashes stay there for two weeks, right? Or maybe they get some flowers and the flowers have died there and you just find these dead, dried up flowers there. So he says, have love for the sacred places. And then have love for the process of humility. One of the keys on the devotion connection path is humility. Remember that crazy elephant was the elephant of pride, of arrogance. You know, I mean, what are each of us anyway? I mean, if we're divine beings, and in that sense, we're wonderful and powerful and beautiful and incredible. But from another sense, we're a little speck in the universe. I mean, we're really just a little, you know, all you have to do is go in an airplane, and all of Dallas is a speck. What to speak, if you go up in a spaceship, the whole Earth is a speck. You know, from the point of view of the galaxies, if you've ever seen one of those things where, you know, you go out and out and out and out and out from Earth up to the universe, and then what are we? So a little, a little humility. Humility doesn't mean that, you know, you let people abuse you or you go around saying, well, I'm so terrible. That's not what it means. This means an honest assessment that before I was born, the world was going on. After I die, the world's still going to go on. <laughs> if there's aliens on other planets, they're probably not too concerned about what I'm doing today. <laughs> probably most people in Dallas aren't even that concerned about what I'm doing today. To not, to not exaggerate our, our importance. And to be, not, not to think that everybody has to praise me and everybody has to honor me as the center of the universe. All right. So now he's talking about how we should start out with love for all these. Now he talks about the obstacles of pride. He's going to talk about four obstacles of pride. This is a very brief presentation. I will be giving, when am I giving a more detailed presentation on this book? Sunday at 10 o'clock. Where? In Frisco. In Frisco. It sounds like it's on. Is it here at the temple? Where is it going to be? One second. Sunday, 10 o'clock in Frisco. In Frisco. Okay. So you can get the address from Gopi if you want. Yes. You say Frisco, I think it must be, you know, San Francisco. <laughs> and I was thinking, I'm going to go there Sunday morning. <laughs> Didn't even know I had a flight coming up. Anyway, so uh, uh, there I'll be going into this in, in this particular section in, in much more depth. So this is just a little, little, little taster. So he says, the first obstacle of pride is pride in sound. Pride of sound what we say and what we hear. So I think people are becoming aware how important sound is. So in all of the great spiritual traditions, we're told that the world was created with sound, yes? So of course in the Eastern tradition, we say that sound is? Oh. And actually everything is still vibrating. We know that everything is moving. Like this chair is mostly space, yes? Everybody knows? That? Yes. And each atom is mostly space, and the atoms, there's movement. Well, if there's movement, guess what? There's sound. So everything is still making a sound. And how our lives are playing out is largely dependent on what sounds we make and what sounds we hear. And as I say, I think that there's a lot of, um, a lot of people who are recognizing 
this fact. How we talk about ourselves to ourselves, how we talk about ourselves to others, how we talk about others, how we talk about our lives, makes a huge difference. There's so many medical studies that how we talk about things matters. You know, I remember my daughter some years ago got in a motorcycle accident, got a punctured lung. I was talking to her on the phone. She said, oh, mom, I'm always in pain, just pain, all day pain, pain. I said, look, you're walking around all day just saying pain, 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 pain. I said, why don't you walk around all day saying comfort, healing, comfort, healing, comfort, healing. She called me the next day. She said, you know, I feel three quarters better. Don't we find that how we look at the world and how happy we are has a lot to do with what we say? Right? Oh, I hate my life. Life sucks. Why did he do that? I didn't do that. I didn't do that. And if we go, oh, you know, wow. I'm in a nice house. I have food to eat. Got the sun. I've got friends. It doesn't it change, yes, with sounds that we make. So this is about pride of sound. And that that you know, again, we're, it, it's where we're elevating our own importance materially or any sounds we, we say or we hear that are out of sync with our spiritual aspirations. So we may have started on a spiritual path, but if we're exposing ourselves to sounds or making sounds that are out of sync with our spirituality, he compares these sounds to a prostitute. He says these sounds that are out of sync with our spirituality, that are out of sync with our ideals, with our intention, they may appear very beautiful, but just like a prostitute may appear to be very attractive and promising, I'm going to give you pleasure and love, but what does she want only? Money. So here she's stealing the man's wealth right out of his heart. So if we engage in hearing and speaking sounds that are against our higher spiritual ideals, they may appear attractive, but they will steal the wealth from our heart. And just like people who frequent prostitutes, they may lose their family, they're certainly gonna lose their money, they may lose their health, they may lose their reputation, they may lose their job, and eventually the prostitute also leaves them. So he says the cure for this problem is to have a great jewel. If we want to get our, what we hear and what we say in sync with our ideals, we need to have this jewel. And this is a jewel of seeing sound as service, of benefit. Right? You go into so many business. How can I serve you? We aim to be of service. The concept of service means I want to benefit you. If we take the sounds that we make should be beneficial for ourselves and others and the sounds that we hear. To remember that sounds are creative. They're a kind of food, they're a kind of nourishment, subtly. And just like we want to eat good food, we want to eat food that will benefit us and benefit the planet. So we should want to hear and make sounds that will actually nourish us on a deep spiritual level. And if we have that mood of sound as service, it will act as a powerful jewel. Perhaps some of you are aware that certain gems also have healing potencies. So this is the metaphor that if we take our sounds as service, it will act like a jewel that has, this is also a picture in our book, by the way. 
It will act like a jewel that has a healing potency. And the sounds we make will nourish us and bring us towards our goal of spirituality. Now, sounds are on kind of a gross level. Right? The sounds I make are heard by others. And if I'm, if I'm speaking in ways that are opposed to my ideals, other people will be aware of it. So this is on a little bit more subtle level. Here is problems with actions. This is when our actions are not in harmony with our ideals. Right? When we're not walking our talk. And this is a problem among all spiritual paths where people, they're speaking very nicely. They're speaking about spiritual things and about God, and, but their behavior doesn't, isn't in sync. And the metaphor that he gives for this are highway robbers. He says, you're on a shining path, but these highway robbers have a rope along your path. Now, of course, here I don't think we have highway robbers. Yeah? <laughs> I've been to some places in India where they'll say, don't go on that road at night. Do you have any bad neighborhoods here? Yeah. Where it's like if you go there at night, you may get robbed? Yeah? Or during the day. Or during the day, even. Yeah. Okay. So then th this is a metaphor for that. You know, that the, the roads where you've got the highway robbers. So I hope the men here will excuse me that the artist decided to depict all these as male. So <laughs> these robbers are lust, anger, envy, greed, illusion, or fear, and madness. And their ropes are made out of the actions that are, again, against our ideals. We know that they're not good for us, but we do them anyway. Kind of, you know, I know I shouldn't watch that. And we're watching. I know I shouldn't eat that. And we're eating it. I shouldn't do that. And we're doing it. And these ropes are basically like around our necks. We become like a dog on a leash. So that it's almost as if we're forced to do things we don't want to do. Come, watch this. Eat this. Do this. No, 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 no. Go over here. Now, what's interesting is that the metaphor here is that what's forcing us to do behaviors against our own ideals, which is bizarre, isn't it? Is our own anger, our own fears, our own lust, our own greed, our own envy. And we think, well, if I wasn't greedy, I wouldn't work hard. If I wasn't envious, I wouldn't compete to do my best. If I wasn't lusty, I wouldn't take care of my wife or husband. And we're thinking, I, I need these things in order to motivate me. And we don't realize that by having these, we get pulled around also to do what we don't want to do. So the cure for this is to call for the help of people who are free from this. To call for the help of people who are free from this self-sabotage, from this hypocrisy. And they're able, by their example, by their teaching, by their advice, to free us from these ropes. Then we have a more subtle level. So that, was, that one was a little subtle because the activities we do against our ideals might be things we hide from others, but we are aware of them ourselves. This is something that we hide from ourselves. The way in which we have thought patterns that are in opposition to our spiritual goal, where we're fooling ourselves. So here on the gross platform, these robbers are dead by the shining path. And we might think, okay, I have this jewel of beneficial speech. My actions are all first class. I am actually becoming very spiritual and purified. But Das Goswami says, 
you better think of what's your process of purification. You may actually be taking bath in the urine of a very big donkey. <laughs> now, how do we know we have this problem? He says that donkey urine is, is, it gives a burning sensation. So if our speech is beneficial, our actions are in line with our ideas, but in our mind we don't have peace and joy, in our mind we have a burning sensation. We're irritated, we're annoyed, we're upset. Then we have this problem metaphorically. And this means when the motives for our actions are not in line with our ideals, what's driving us internally. We're doing the right thing, but we're doing it for the wrong reason. Or we're justifying things that aren't exactly wrong technically, but they're not really the best thing. We're somehow justifying and rationalizing to ourselves what kind of person we are and what's driving us. Just recently I, was, I met someone who was extremely angry at another person and allowing that anger to dictate the decisions in her life. And she had decided to cut off her relationship with a lot of long-term friends and even with family because she was so angry. And she said to me, she said, Ormila, I am a volcano. She said, and when that volcano turns on, I can be really nasty. And I thought, that's what this problem is, where you feel this burning inside. And she was thinking, oh, the actions I'm doing are all very good. I'm acting from high moral ground, and I'm acting from spiritual principles. But it wasn't. It was actually all nasty. So the cure for this problem, this is, this is a little... It's a little tricky, but if you can understand this one point from this whole presentation I'm giving tonight, you'll find that your whole life becomes a very beautiful thing. Dasko Swami says, take your mind and bathe it in the ocean of love. Now, because these are problems of self-hypocrisy, because these are problems where we're rationalizing or justifying things to ourselves, we're not going to be able to introspectively find them out. I mean, we know what behaviors we're doing that we don't really want to do. We know that. And we and other people know when we're speaking and hearing things that aren't good for us. We know that. But this we don't know. We don't know how we're sabotaging ourselves because our mind has covered it with so many justifications and so many rationalizations. We think, I'm actually doing something good. So here we take our mind and we bathe it in the ocean of love at the feet of the Supreme, at the feet of Krishna, at the feet of our source. And we say, you show me. I can't see it. This doesn't even work with another human being. Why doesn't it work with another human being? My, my own theory is, based on my experience with this, is if I can see someone else's self-hypocrisy and I try to point it out to them, I've never found a time when that person will hear it from me. I've just never had that experience. Even if they've asked me, even if they said to me, Ermila, please tell me how I'm sabotaging myself in ways I can't see. And sometimes I can see it immediately. And I'll say, oh, like this, and they get angry. Oh, I'm not doing that. I just haven't found it to be effective. And I think it's because with this self-sabotage, we've built up all these layers of rationalization. But Krishna, the divine, can show it to us in such a way that we will see it. So this is a question of, of, of prayer. 
a really, a, but it, it's a bathing in the ocean of love. It's a kind of beautiful prayer, but it has to be said sincerely. And this is the, the trick here. Please show me how I'm sabotaging myself. And it has to be accompanied with, when you show me, I will listen. <laughs> show me the truth, I'll believe it and I'll act on it. And people will ask me, how do you know that you're being shown the truth? And my answer is, how do you know the difference between a tree-ripened peach you got out of your backyard and the stuff flown in from Chile in the supermarket? <laughs> or how do you tell the difference between fresh squeezed orange juice and orange-flavored soda, you know? <laughs> I mean, you know, we know when we taste something authentic, isn't it? We know. You buy the, those big gallons of colored flavored orange water, <laughs> right? And you get some oranges and you go to your juicer and you squeeze them yourself. You can, we know. We, we sometimes think the false thing is authentic, but we never think the authentic thing is false. We can tell when something's authentic. So we ask the divine, show me, and I will do it. And if we're not ready to do that, then we can first say, would you please give me the courage to ask? Because sometimes people say, I don't know if I want to ask what my real problems are. I don't know if I want to find out. Okay, then ask for courage. Please give me the courage. Because don't, don't ask insincerely. That's a really bad idea. If we're not, if we're not ready to face our self-hypocrisy and let go of it, then asking for it will mean that we're going to be put into a very difficult situation. So when we do that and we see the reality of what we're doing to ourselves and be willing to face that, that requires some humility. And it will ha there will be a few minutes of pain. I'm just warning you. But it's only a few minutes. It's, it's, it doesn't go on. And you face that with the, oh my God, I'm really doing that? Wow. Wow, I, I'm actually doing that? Sure. And to really face it and then be able to say, you know what, I don't want to do that anymore. It will be gone and it will not come back. All right, last level. So that was the mind. We had the speech, the body, the mind. This is in the heart, metaphorically speaking. This is where we're acting against our ideals at the most deepest level of desire. And this is metaphorically represented by a dead dog. Now, nothing wrong with dead dogs, but there's something wrong with dead dogs if you want to eat them. So here the metaphor is this disloyal woman, a wild disloyal woman who wants to eat a dead dog. And the ladies of divine love, they're not going to go into the heart while this wild lady wants to eat this dead dog. Now, why disloyal? Because the dead dog represents wanting honor and praise for being a spiritual person, wanting other people to say, oh, you are so spiritual. You really want enlightenment. You're not a materialist. That's the dead dog. And wanting to eat it means I want to enjoy other people praising my spirituality. Why is she disloyal? Because if I want to be praised, I don't hang around with people who correct me. I only want to go with people who praise me. And like sometimes I won't enter a store where I want to buy something if the music's really obnoxious. So the ladies of pure love, they won't enter the heart as long as this lady's eating the dead dog. Now, she has a boyfriend. Her boyfriend's name is Deceit. 
Because when I want to be honored, I won't be honest. I'll present myself as a little better than I am. Those are all the masks of deceit. So how do we get rid of this problem, which is at the root of actually all materialism? This desire to be honored, which is shown there symbolically with trophies, is at the root of everything that's false in our life, everything that impedes being who we authentically want to be. And the way we get rid of this is we do some humble, simple service of people who are actually saintly. And they'll drive out this desire for us to be honored for our spirituality. This is, this is a very, very deep-rooted problem. But by taking shelter of saintly persons and persons who are enlightened, they will help us to be able to conquer this problem. And then, in actual humility, we'll say, even though I have so many problems and so many difficulties, even though there's so much in me that I wish were different, that's like dirt, that still a great flower can grow in this heart. Now, I don't know how we're going to do this, if this is going to work. I've never done this on an iPad, so hopefully it will work. How, can I, how do I click on a slide? You have no idea. So we'll try this. So in going through all these difficulties on the spiritual path, we may feel a little overwhelmed and think, well, I have all these difficulties. How am I going to come to spirituality? But when we come to true humility, then a miracle happens, and hopefully it will happen with these slides. (laughs) We're going to try it. One, two, three. Aha! Yay! The whole ocean of problems just became a little puddle. It's kind of a dirty puddle. But it's a very little puddle that we can easily step over. And then we come to fully joyous life. And in that joyous life, we enter into the divine atmosphere, which is called the Garden of Sacred Fragrance. In this garden of sacred fragrance, we find our true spiritual selves, full of youthful beauty, power, opulence. And there we have a relationship, an eternal relationship with Krishna in some sort of loving reciprocation. Then, although we continue to live in the same world that Jeddah described with the rats and the crows and the owls and the snakes, internally, We are not part of this world. We act and work in the world, but internally we have realized our spiritual nature and it is like we are constantly drinking glowing nectar that fills us with happiness, with wisdom, with detachment, and with peace. So this is my teacher, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, who I would very much like to... Uh, thank for being able to understand these metaphors and here is the the fable that I wrote based on this metaphorical journey so thank you for setting this up on the iPad we've gone after 8 but the door hasn't opened (laughs) we're so close (laughs) (laughs) so I don't know thank you so much So I guess we don't have time for questions or questions. Yeah, time for a little bit of questions. If anybody wants to ask anything, uh, I just wanted to know 
that the whole presentation you gave is in this book? Yes, not the big book. The big book has the last section. So this big book just has the last section by Dasko Swami. So this has from taking up the path of devotion connection to enlightenment. But if all you've ever read about Hinduism in general is maybe like the Bhagavad Gita, would you recommend this book? This is, this is an advanced book. Uh, but what we have in this book, we have commentaries, although the original person who wrote this, Adasko Swami, lived about 500 years ago. He wrote in Sanskrit. We have a commentary written by a great teacher about 100 years ago. But then we also have commentaries written by people today. So we have commentaries written by about four or five people today, which makes it a lot more accessible. I would say the most accessible, com even though I wrote one of the commentaries here, um, the most accessible commentary, I'd say, is written by Bhakti Vigyan Goswami, which really brings this, this book to the modern day. Uh, because we have so many illustrations here, frankly, you could just go through the illustrations and get the idea. This book is, is the whole thing, but it's in the form of a story. It's this form of Avid and his friends who go through all these difficulties in the material, in material life, then they go to the city of Acumen and they check out each of the different connection paths. And then eventually, I'm not going to tell you the whole story. <laughs> Spoiler for you. But it goes through everything. And then this is just a book about uh, mantra meditation. So we, we have all three of them here, whatever one you want. We have a special deal. If you get all three books, you get $5 off. And if you buy three of these, you get the fourth one free. And if you buy three of these, you get the fourth one free. Because these are very nice gift books. Uh, this book is written in, without any Sanskrit terms and without any of the jargon of the Hare Krishna movement. So I wrote this book to be accessible to anybody. You know, this book is also quite accessible, but this I wrote specifically to be accessible to a general audience. So what I tried to do here was to go to very high themes and very high practices, but in an accessible way. Because what I found is a lot of times when people try to write books on spirituality for the public, they not only try to make the language very accessible, but they talk only on very beginning topics. So I tried to go from the most beginning topic to the most elevated topic, but without, you know, every organization you get your own lingo. So I, I took all that out. So this is, the kind of, this is the kind of book that you could give as a gift to people who don't know anything about, about Bhakti Yoga and Krishna consciousness. Okay. Thank you. But I mean, senior people in our own organization told me they read it and cried, hopefully in happiness. <laughs> <laughs> and I, ha I do have actually three different people who work in Hollywood are talking to me about making this into a movie. So I know nothing about making an into a movie. I, I'm not experienced at all with the movie industry and I'm trying to figure out how best to go about it. All right? Yes? I have a question. You were, you were talking about being authentic, like the woman who is disloyal. Yes. And how she just wants praise. Yes. And kind of doesn't show her negative qualities. Yes. So I have this friend who... Um, she observed that people only post like the good things in their life on social media and that it can 
it can cause people to feel depressed because they yes. are seeing the behind the scenes and they're seeing everybody else's highlight reel. So she started posting um, like authentic things on social media, like I'm not feeling good, I'm not okay, and <laughs> and then she got all all of these people are like, are you all right? if social media where things tend to be very, very public is exactly the right platform for, for that kind of revelation. At least we should be authentic. The main person we should be authentic with is ourself. That's the main person we need to be authentic with. And as far as with others, Don't advertise yourself as being better or more clever or more together than you are. And at least have some people with whom you can be very honest. You know, I, I find that to have some few good intimate friends that can see my genuine good and not think that, you know, oh, she's a saint, and see my genuine bad and not think that I'm a demon. You follow? Mm -hmm. You know, people who see me holistically. And I think it's very important to have some good friends in life. Not that you have to tell them every single thing you do and every single thing you think. I got, that would be proper. But people who see you holistically. Where you can be yourself. And they can see the, the, the good things you do and the bad things you do without, without improper judgment one way or the other. But it's basically giving up the desire to be falsely honored. To, to, to put out a persona for the world for the sake of people honoring me in a way that, that's, it's not even comfortable actually. You know, and, and that's the problem that takes down a lot of celebrities. Even just people who aren't even interested in spirituality, but what, what really hampers them is that they're so much putting out this persona all the time. And people are praising them for this persona, and it weighs on them, and weighs on them, and weighs on them, and then they finally crack in one way or another with some sort of drugs or alcohol or some sort of self-destructive behavior, you know, or they get very sick because they're constantly keeping up this, this heavy pretense. But that's particularly, a, it's a danger for anyone, but it's particularly a danger for a spiritualist not to put up some pretense of one's spirituality. All right. So thank you very, very much. Thank you. You're most welcome. Thank you, Mother Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. And thank you for hooking this up so that I didn't have to try to use a cord.